Why don't you get your Bibles out? Let's open back to 2 Corinthians. We're picking up in chapter 5, where you left off on uh, Thanksgiving weekend with Pastor Chandler. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to that message, you should go online and listen to it. It's a great message. And uh, we're going to pick up right where he left off. I want to welcome the folks joining us online, uh, all our family members scattered around the country and the globe, and especially those of you that are deployed. We love you and are grateful for you and thankful for your service to our country. Page 1068 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, then why don't you take that Bible home with you? That'll be our gift to you. You can take it with you. You know somebody that doesn't have a Bible and needs a Bible. Then take that Bible and give it to them that they might read God's Word. And God might do His perfect work in their life through His Word. Amen. Well, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope that... Uh, you're doing well. I'm grateful that you're here, and I'm grateful for the, all the things that God has done in this past year. And, uh, you know, I think for some of you, you know, the younger people in the room, they're like, wow, it's 2023. Like, okay, woo. But then there's some of us in the room that are like, it's 2023? I mean, Goodness, when I started, when I came on staff here, it was in the 19s, as my kids call it. They go, Dad, back in the 19s. I'm like, stop saying that. It's super annoying. <laughs> like it's some ancient world, the 19s. Yeah, and here we are, 2023. So we couldn't have possibly... Uh, predicted or known what God had in store for us this coming year. So many things that uh, he just brought before us that we couldn't have known beforehand, but yet experienced. I mean, you think back, I mean, um, imagine had we known if I would have said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the gospel to 10,000 homes. We're going to do that. And you would have thought, what are you talking about? And yet here's where we are. And that's what's happened. And it's just been uh, just an incredible journey. I was thinking about all the things that God has shown us over the past year, thinking back on all the messages and the series and just uh, thinking through, uh, wow, how God just did a revolution in our hearts in so many ways as we looked at his word. And, and, and we didn't deserve that. He did that just out of his goodness towards us. And we have a lot to be grateful for. And uh, I think the first, uh, you know, a new year, new, uh, uh, the beginning of a new year is a good opportunity for us to, to, you know, just stop and think, okay, what do I need to embed into my heart on this first day of this new year that can carry me through uh, the year to come, what, and you know, based on what God has been saying to us and is about to say, what would that be? And so, I want you to get your listening guides out and and write this statement down. 
course, I have finite, limited knowledge and understanding. But this may be what God wants us to know for this year coming up from now through the next 12 months. That our daily war, and it is a daily thing, and it is a war. And so if it's not daily and it's not a war, then you're missing it. It's a daily war. Is believing an utterly audacious gospel. I think what God showed me last year is just how crazy and insane and unbelievable the gospel is. How, how many, it just seemed like week after week I would, I would open the Bible and the things that God would say to me were just so mind-boggling that I just think, God, do you ever do anything in a normal way, in a predictable way, in a, in a, and not in human terms? I don't believe he does. And so here's where we left off. You look, uh, look at chapter 5, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, Pastor Chandler was talking about, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Remember that? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So many of us know that verse. We're used to that verse. You've, you've uh, memorized that verse, quoted that verse many times in your life. But do we really get that? I mean, do we really get that? You know, if you, for example, uh, this is a good practice for you to employ. You take up three by five note cards. And you write a little sentence down or a verse down. Like you just write 2 Corinthians 5.17. You just write, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You write on a 3 by 5 card and you put it in your pocket or on the dashboard of your car or on your bathroom mirror. And then you just spend a week meditating on that sentence. Just all week. And you just start with, therefore... If anyone, so maybe Monday, you're just thinking all day Monday, if anyone, therefore, if, if anyone, and you just think about how anyone, think of what that encompasses. And then Tuesday, you just meditate, is in Christ. Like, what does that mean, in Christ? Anyone is in Christ. And you just think about that all day. And then Wednesday, that he is new and then Thursday you just start putting all those pieces together therefore if anyone is in Christ and Friday just think what in the world and then I want you as you do that what what this is what I do I think about all the things I'm experienced during Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday that are telling me the opposite Because if you don't do that, you're not being honest. See, the truth is, is that this is true. But as you're waking up and living in the same world I'm living in, interacting with the same people I'm interacting with, experiencing the same things, I'm, it's all telling me the opposite about me. 
There's so many times where I don't feel like a new creation, and I'm looking at other people that don't look like a new creation, and what I'm experiencing doesn't seem, you know, and it seems, and I see a lot of old. I see a lot of broken, fractured, wounded, dark. And I just, you're just thinking, now this is true, but this is what I see, and this is what I experience, and this is what I feel, and these two things, see, It's audacious. It's a war. If you're not warring every day, you're just going to concede to know it's not new. It's just old. It's the same. Because that's what the world's, everything in the world's telling us. I mean, this Bible is audacious. It's crazy. You just think about 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1 opens with comfort and suffering. What? Chapter 3, glory manifesting through shame. Then we keep pressing. We get to chapter 4, life working through death. Today we finish chapter 5. Next week we're going to open up in chapter 6. Riches through poverty. It just keeps going and going and going. Listen, one of two things is true. Either you really don't believe any of this or you're in a war. Because it's got to be one or the other. Because you cannot just look at this and go, yeah, I believe it. It's true. And then walk out and live. There's no way. It's a war. It is counterintuitive in every way. It doesn't make sense so many times. So here's what happens. We, God, we become Christians. We become a new creation. And as new creations, we think, well, I'm a new creation. Like this, this completed thing. But as a new creation, what it does is it, it inaugurates this whole new thing, this whole new life, this whole new economy, this whole new operation. I mean, all everything becomes new, but it's not this finite finished thing. It is finished, yet it's unfinished. See what I mean? It's all days. It's finished, but not finished. And so what happens? We're new. That's finished, but it's not finished because God's working in us. He's working. He's... He's changing our hearts. He's changing the way we think about life. He's showing us how to see things the way they ought to be seen, the way they're meant to be seen. And the whole time this is happening, there's guerrilla warfare happening inside our hearts. And it's constantly fighting for control. Because it feels so sketchy and so unstable to walk out on this audacious gospel and to walk out into the world on this this counterintuitive thing because the world looks this way but God's calling us to walk see think it you some of some of you don't even know what I'm talking about that's what scares me because the Bible calls you to walk by faith not by sight Walking by faith is a little freaky. Walking by sight is easy. 
But when you're walking by faith and not by sight, it's, it's, it feels uneven and, and, and unbalanced and unstable. And we're fighting. There is warfare inside wanting to control. We, we start loving Jesus in a new way. We start understanding things. And, and, and then, then what happens? We, 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 start to change, we start changing. See, at salvation, God changed us. But then after salvation, we start changing. See, don't act like it's simple and makes sense because you know you're lying. He completely changed you, completed you, done, finished, but then you're changing. In your life, what happens? You, you start changing and you're, you start producing fruit in your life. See, things start happening. You know, good things start happening. The evidences of God's work in, in us start to, to bear evidences. And then what happens when that happens? The, the warfare stop? No, it ramps up. Because remember, we want control. Then God starts doing stuff through us, and so the warfare ramps up, and what happens then? Man. The God that was so big at conversion starts shrinking down. Because God starts doing things through us. And so this, uh, this bizarre thing starts to happen. It's like the more that we walk in newness of power, the more susceptible we are to becoming self-confident. See, God starts working. And things start shifting and changing and adjusting. And it's not like all your problems go away, but what happens is things start to get into control because you begin to live as though you were the way you were created to live. And so then what happens is if you're not at war every day, you subtly start to believe that you're the reason why things are going the way they're going. See, the big God that saved you started to shrink down. He got smaller and smaller. And the longer you walk, the more susceptible you are to a shrinking God. See, the people, whenever you talk to somebody who just got saved, God is enormous. But explain to me why. I talk to people that have been saved by decades. And they're dead as a hammer. What? Wait, what? Because I think the plan was that when we were changed and, this, and it was completed and done, but yet it inaugurated this season of change, it would be this ever-growing change. And when we read in the Bible, we read of people who change and change and grow and grow and grow, and they, they, they are continually growing in sanctification, and, and they're bearing more fruit, and God's doing greater and greater things in them. And yet sometimes we're looking around, and we see people who claim the name of Christ, but are going in the opposite direction. 
And then you come to the first day of a new year and you sit in the church you've been sitting in for a long time, in the same pew you've been sitting in for a long time. And here's the scary thought. Is there a moment, ladies and gentlemen, in your past where you were walking closer with God than you are right now? Is there a moment? My guess is that there's a whole bunch of people in here that say yes. And my question is, why? What happened? What happened? Does that seem right to you? I didn't ask you if there's a moment in your past where things were going better. I asked you, is there a moment in your past where you were walking closer? So maybe we do need what God's going to say to us today. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18. So right after Paul says we're a new creation. See, God knew we wouldn't understand what that meant. He knew everything I just said to you was going to be a reality in our lives. And you're saying, man, I feel like you're reading my mind. No, dummy, I'm reading my mind. Because your mind is like my mind. Yeah. So we're a new creation, but we don't get it. We think we do, but we don't get it. So look, the very next verse, verse 18. All this is from God. All what? What he just said. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in this moment, Lord, as we believe and know this is your inerrant, perfect word. It's intended and meant for us. It's breathed by you. It's 100% relevant and true in this moment, in every life in this room. So will you help us to humble ourselves before you? Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear Help us, God, to receive what you have. We need it. We're here today for you, not for us, for you. May you be glorified in our lives in a tangible, real way by this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul goes into this conversation about reconciliation. So we, let's have a conversation about reconciliation. Reconciliation, what does that even mean? Reconciliation means a change between two parties. So it's a change of standing 
in a relationship between two people. That's what reconciliation is. You got that? Pretty simple. Not that hard. So there's some implications that you need to understand. These aren't on your listening guide, but you can get this. It should be obvious, but maybe you need to write it down. There's two implications of any time the word reconciliation is used. Okay? And they're always present, and they have to be present, or else it wouldn't make any sense. First implication is that there was a former relationship. You see, in order for there to be reconciliation, there, has to be a, there had to have been a relationship in the past that got fractured. Because if it had never gotten fractured, there can't be reconciliation. See, you can't bring reconciliation into a perfect relationship, duh. Right? Okay, so implication number one is that there was a previous relationship, correct? All right. There was some earlier alliance. So when we think about this, there was a previous relationship. Why are we talking about new creation, reconciliation? What, what does that bring your mind to? Because we know what this passage is about, God rec reconciling himself to us. So what was our previous relationship? In other words, here we are today, born into a world where we're fractured. The relationship between man and God is fractured. That's how you were born. That's how I was born. So for reconciliation to be a possibility, there has to have been a previous relationship. So what's your previous relationship? What's my previous relationship? The Garden of Eden. See, the, the relationship is fractured. Well what, what, well, what was it before? It was perfect. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. There was unfractured. There was nothing that separated them. They lived in deep satisfaction, walking with God. They could speak freely and openly with God. Nothing separated them. There was no division between them. There was nothing in the relationship between Adam and Eve and God that divided them in any way. The little things in the Bible are, are just driving this home. When they're in the Garden of Eden, they're naked before sin. See, some of you are always wondering, like, man. Some of you think, man, that's awesome. Some of you are like, whoo, that ain't what's going on there. They were naked. Why? Because nothing was between them and God, not even clothes, nothing. It was completely perfect and open. The reason why naked is weird to you is because you're broken. If you weren't broken, it wouldn't be weird. And if you're broken and it's not weird, you're even more weird. <laughs> Just clarifying. But then what happens? Sin slithers into that perfect relationship, right? And man chooses autonomy over perfect relationship with God. Man wants it. We want it our way. Why? Because we're guerrilla warfare is fighting for what? Control. And so we choose our way in this, and it's fractured. And the relationship bursts. Suddenly there's hostility, there's enmity, there's, there's division, and the relationship is broken. So the first implication of 
Reconciliation is that there was a previous relationship. You got it now? Second implication is that there's hostility or enmity that exists on both sides of the relationship. In other words, if there's a relationship that needs reconciling, there's hostility on both sides. That's how it works. See, we think that we, I'm telling you, there's so many moments today where you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And if, it, if you're not continually going, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense, then you're not tracking. See, here's another moment. We think, we, most of us grew up thinking, I mean most of you, because trust me, I wasn't thinking about God, but most of you were thinking about God or being taught things about God. And this is what you believed, that the rela- your relationship with God was fractured and it was, there was hostility on your side. In other words, you were an enemy of God because of your sin. That's what you believed, and that is wrong. That's not the main problem. That's a problem, but that is not the problem. You see, we're the party in the relationship that needs to be reconciled. We got that. See, the biggest problem that we have that needs reconciling is not that we've chosen our sin and been separated from God. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is God's enmity with us. Yes. The biggest problem is His enmity towards those who break His law. That's a way bigger problem than you and your position, in your sin, looking at a holy and righteous God. That's why it says, verse 18, through uh, Christ reconciling us to himself, not the other way around. He's not reconciling him to us. He's reconciling us to him. That is very important to understand. And and it could be a shocker to you. Because here's why. In reconciliation, as God's teaching us in this passage, God is the wronged party. You got that? He's the wronged party. And God is the reconciler. See, who's been wronged? God. But who reconciles us to him? God. Now, have you ever thought about this? That's reverse order from anything that we experience in this life and in this world amongst one another. So verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The one who is aggrieved is the one who reconciles. Which means we, me and you, are the recipients of reconciliation. 
So this is very important because if you don't understand this, here's what happens. You think, well, Pastor Tony, that sounds like the same thing. Oh, negative. If you don't understand this, what you become is religious. The difference between religion and relationship is right here. See, first and foremost, reconciliation isn't something we do. It's something we receive. God calls us to do it, but only after we receive it. What's completely clear in this text and throughout the Bible is, is that there, there's no reconciliation. See, once we've been reconciled, then we're given the ministry of reconciliation. You must receive it before you do it. If you try to do it before you receive it, you're religious, We don't wake up one day and decide, you know what? We should be friends with God. We should, we should mend the fence here. I should apologize for what I've done. I, should, I need to get this right. I need to. Now, some of you were taught this growing up. That you, you needed to, to reconcile yourself to God in, a, in this strange way. Do this. You know, go to church all the time. Read your Bible. Come down front, talk to the preacher, fill out a card, get dunked in some water, done whatever it is, that you were doing all these things. And you thought by doing these things, you're going to receive. And, and everything you were doing is not working because you have to receive it. That's the only way you can be reconciled. You can't do it until you received it. It's, okay, so two implications of reconciliation. Number one, there's an existence of a former relationship and there's hostility or enmity that exists on both sides of the relationship. Those two implications qualify a relationship for reconciliation. All right. So here's what we've learned so far. This is a great life principle for you. The one most sinned against does the work to reconcile. Which again, shocking information. And you say, well, what do you mean? What I mean is that's audacious. See, what happens in the world? What happens in every, what has the world taught us about reconciliation? This is what we see. This is what we do. Whenever you are in a have a relationship and it gets fractured whether whichever side of the coin you're on whoever is the most injured or most wronged has the position of power because they're the one who play the victim see they did me wrong i'm the one wounded so it's incumbent upon them to reconcile with me. That's what we think. That's what we've been taught. That's how our, our, that makes sense to us. But the audacious gospel comes around and says, wait a second. Mm -mm. The one most sinned against. Now life is different in the kingdom. It's a war. Every day to believe in audacious gospel. you got a war against it. Because when you're wronged, you're going to feel. 
they owe me. Yeah. And when you wrong somebody, you 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 like, uh, and you know they're playing the victim. You ever been on that the the other side of that coin? And the more, you, and so you're trying to reconcile. And what is, what is the person of power doing? Just making it more difficult and more. Di- they're just rubbing it in, aren't they? Rubbing. They got you. Yeah. Now, why, why on earth would anybody do this? See, because here it's the truth now. Everything I've said this morning, you might be sitting there going, okay, yeah, 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 but wh- are you going to do this? I mean, are you going to do this? It's one thing to nod your head and say, yeah, yeah, but I'm saying, are you going to practice this in your life? Why would you? Well, it's going to be a war. Why would anybody do this? Remember, man, I, I hate that there's a, a month between these messages, but if you, if you remember what Pastor Chandler said, see, he referred back to verse 14. Look at verse 14. Look up at verse 14. He talked about verse 14 where the Bible says, for the love of Christ controls us. You remember that? Look at that. You should underline that in your Bible. So why would anybody embrace this audacious idea of reconciliation for the love of Christ controls us? That's why. Now, what does that mean, controls us? Well, it doesn't mean, I mean, is God forcing us? Well, it can't mean that because we're not doing it. And that's not how God works. But, but Pastor Tony, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what it says. Well, how do we know God isn't forcing us? Well, why don't you think about what that verse says? Why don't you meditate on that for about a day or two or three or four or five? For the love of Christ controls us. See, this is what you got to do. Don't confuse motivation and manipulation. Those are two very, very, very different things, aren't they? And so when we read the love of Christ controls us, some of us think, well, yes, I'm going to do this because God's controlling me. But then, but you're not doing it. Because you're not warring, because it's audacious, because everything in the world's telling you the opposite thing, because it doesn't make any sense in real everyday application. And what happens if you're not careful, you start serving a God that's very disconnected from your reality. And that's not the God of the Bible. And that should make you really scared. Because this God of this Bible that wrote these words is the God of right now. Every moment in your life past and every moment in your life going forward, He reigns over. So don't confuse manipulation and motivation so quickly. 
manipulation. Well, what is that? Manipulation is moving people towards where they wouldn't want to go if they knew everything that could be known. That's what manipulation is. Moving people towards something that they wouldn't go to if they knew everything. That's why you manipulate. Manipulation attempts to control the way another person feels or thinks or behaves. So anytime you're manipulating somebody, it has to do with the way they feel, behave, think. Or anytime you're being manipulated, it has to do with that. And they're trying to move you or you're trying to move somebody towards something that they wouldn't naturally go to. And how do I know that? Because if they were naturally going to it, you wouldn't be manipulating them. Right? That's manipulation. But what is motivation? Well, motivation looks similar because it's encouraging and empowering movement towards something. But motivation empowers and equips movement towards something that's already desired. That's motivation. You see, you can't motivate me towards something that I'm utterly opposed to. That's not, then you don't understand the word motivation. See, what you, if, if you're trying to convince me to move in a direction that I'm opposed to moving in, motivation's the wrong word. You, you, need to, you, you need to rework my understanding of what that is. You need some, some detailed explanation. You need to change something. It's not motivation. So see, think about this. It doesn't say, for Christ controls us. It doesn't say that. What does it say? For the love of Christ controls us. For the love. See, see, on day two of you meditating on that little sentence, you'd get on the love and you'd get stumped up and you'd go, whoa, whoa, whoa now. It's the love, the love, the love. Now think about it. Love, what do you know about love? Love can't be forced. You cannot force me to love anything, and I cannot force you to love anything. It cannot be forced. If it's forced, it's not love. So, so that's how you know God's not manipulating you or controlling, forcing you, because it, it would just say God controls you. But in order for it to say the love of Christ controls you, what God's doing is He motivates us. And motivation is empowering and equipping to move towards something that's desired. So what if it's not desired? Well, then it short-circuits motivation. Now some of you, a little light bulb's coming on. Because now now we're really swimming in the deep end of the pool. Now you're thinking, wait a second. In your heart, you don't say this out loud, but in your heart you're realizing, yeah, because I'm not motivated to do these things that I know I should be doing. Uh Uh-huh. And why isn't God motivating you to do those things? Because you don't want to. 
You're shutting him out. So you're causing another spiritual process to, to operate in your life that doesn't have to do it today or we'll be here for three hours. So, see, God's motivating. What do you mean? First John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You know what that is? That's motivation. And how are we motivated? Look at what it says. See, it doesn't say, beloved, you ought to love one another. See, a lot of people think, well, that's what it means. No, that's not what it means. It's not true if it just says you ought to love one another. It's true, but it's impossible. The only way to do this is this way, the way the Bible says it. Look, come on, let's play a game. True or false, the most powerful motivator in the universe is love. It's not a trick, guys. You're all like, I don't trust you. You gonna, you know you finna shame me. You setting me up. No. No, I want us all to know that we're dumb together, okay? Well, that's true. Sort of. Well, yeah, it's true, but how is it true? This is the problem. The problem is so many people buy into this, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Look, this one I'm talking about. See, most people think that what this entails is that the more, in a human relationship, the more I love you, the more I'm motivated to move you towards what's desired. Uh-huh. Isn't that true? Well, yeah, are you mo- you're more motivated to, to you're, you're, you're more compelled. You're more, the more you love somebody, so your, your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or whatever, the more you love somebody, the more motivation you have in their life. Isn't that true? Well, yeah. All right. Yeah, that's normal. Is that how it works with God? Look at verse 14. Come on, come on, come on. We got to hurry. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Then here's the big word. Because. You got this? Because. Now we get explanation. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So how is love the most powerful motivator? Is it true? Yes. How? How? Because if you don't know how, it's pointless. How? Not love for the person. It's not love for the object. The motivation is being loved by the one who died for us so that we could live. I don't think you got that. Listen, Paul is not saying that you're motivated by how much you love God. 
I mean, there's so many mind-blowing moments. You can't give me a month to think about a passage that I'm fixing to preach. That's just the problem. I got to go week to week or else this happens. Look at what's going on here. What do you mean? Doesn't that sound just perfectly logical? I'm motivated by how much I love God. The more I love God, the more I'm motivated to do the things that I should do. Sounds good. But guess what? That's religion. Because why? Because it turns the focus on me. So now, what is the determiner of what the, what the outcome is? Is me. It becomes my performance. If the more I love God, then the more I'm motivated, then I become the driving force behind the motivation, which means I become the motivator, which is religion, which is how so many people today are living. That is completely false and unbiblical. It is not about how much you love God. Our motivation is not based on how much we love Jesus. It is based on how much we are loved by Jesus. This is huge. Look. All right, come on. Let's, un let's untangle this because seriously, you can't be confused about this. All right? The more that we love God, the more we will obey God. See, that's true in, practic in practicality. That is true. So the more you obey God is evidencing how much you love God. That is true. But here's, the, here's where you got you to gotta get to the bottom of this thing or it won't work for you. How... Do you increase your love for God? How? You, you wake up today and say, today I want to love God more today than I did yesterday. Great. Is that a good ambition? Yes. How are you going to do that? Because wanting to do it is not going to make it happen. How does a person grow in their love for God? The way to love God more, there's only one way. If you want to love God more, you have to grow in your understanding of God's love for you. That's how that works. See, love for God grows in us when love from God grows in us. Now, let me clarify the amount that God of, of love that God has for us doesn't grow. It's static. It's immense. It's inconceivable. God cannot love you more tomorrow than he loves you today. He cannot love you less tomorrow than he loves you today. The problem is not that God's love moves. The problem is our understanding of God's love for us. So to grow, if I want to love God more... I need to focus my heart on understanding how much God loves me. That's what this text is teaching. And then you understand, no wonder so many people are so jacked up. 
1 John 1, 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Hello. There it is. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. There it is right there. That's the gospel. And think about Jesus' love. It's not, is it a vague love? What, what is it? So remember, because all of this, I mean, I wish we had three hours. All of this works together. So you go, I need to grow in my understanding of how God loved me. Well, part of that is you got to understand what love is. And the Bible, and not what you think love is, or not what someone told you or what you heard, but what does the Bible teach you about love? Every time the Bible talks about God's love for us, it's, it's teaching us that, listen, it's not some vague love. It's, it's a bold, genuine love that leads with action. It leads with action. See, what God loves us, how do we know that? Because he's the propitiation of our sin. He did something. He took action. Love is action. See, some of you think love is emotion. Love is emotion. You know when the emotion of love comes in? After the action. If the emotion precedes the action, it's not real love. Because how do you know it's real? From the action. Because emotion isn't trustworthy. We got to hurry up or I'll be here all day. So Christ loved us. He, in action first, he accomplished something. And in response to that, we feel the emotion and we live in the reality of, but it's the action that creates the emotion. See, if you told me, you say, Pastor Tony, I met the person of my dreams and I love them with all my heart. And I say, well, okay, well, where are they? And they go, well, well, I mean, I've just been talking to them on the computer. Fool, you don't love them. That's impossible. You might love them in the future. You might fall in love with them. But you don't love them right now. It's just the emotion. He took action. What's the action? Verse 19. What is the action? Here we go. Come on, hurry up. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not causing their trespasses, not counting their trespasses against them. So in order for God, the one who is most offended in this reconciliation problem that needs to happen. In order for God to reconcile us to himself, he had to find a way not to count our trespasses against us. Why? Because in God's economy, for him to be holy and just, every trespass has to count. So the problem is, there was a perfect relationship. Now the relationship's been fractured. The the great God of the universe comes in to mend it, but how are you going to mend it? Because... There's been, there's been sin accomplished on this side towards this side, and that sin cannot be overlooked. It has to count, or else he's not righteous and holy and just. So, this is what he did. He made a way to make our sins count, but not against us, but against him. So when we say... That's what we're expressing when we say things like God lived the life that we couldn't live. And that means he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he did that for us. The perfect life would accomplish what 
Adam couldn't accomplish. It's his mending what was broken. It would restore and maintain the relationship that God once had with us in the garden. Yes. And so God, in His infinite wisdom, He says, I'm going to come in the likeness of man. I'm going to live the life that they couldn't live. I'm going to obey the law that they couldn't obey. And once I've done that, once I've earned back everything to now restore the relationship back to what it once was, once I have done everything needed to do that, I'm going to make a swap. I'm going to be the substitution for them. And so I'm going to take my perfect record and I'm going to give it to them. And I'm going to take their broken and dirty and fouled up, messed up, wrong, sinful record. And I'm going to apply it to me. My son is going to be the agent. See, God is holy and just. The son comes as the agent to live the life that we couldn't live, to earn back everything that was broken, to then take his record, apply it to us, so that then we could come here and go back to where it was in the Garden of Eden. The son's the agent that makes that possible. See, God couldn't come down there and do that. See, if we didn't serve a triune God, this wouldn't work. This is how this works. He's the agent that does all that. And then the swap is made. And so his record is accounted to us. And now we can be placed back into right fellowship with him. And so that takes a war because you're thinking right fellowship with him. But every day you're walking around not feeling like it's right fellowship with him. And you're wondering, well, why is all this happening to me? And what's God doing? And what's wrong with the world? And why do I feel so bad? And why am I struggling? And why is everything going wrong? And why are so many people broken? And why, 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 why? And I just don't feel like all that. It's nothing like the Garden of Eden. You see, it's a war. It's a war against the audacious gospel. The reason why a holy and just God doesn't count our trespasses against us is because he counted them against himself. Himself. So see, then, look, it's something we receive first. That's what, so look at verse 19. So it wasn't, he reconciled, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Then it says, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. So you can't do what you haven't received. What does this mean that our sins aren't counted against us? It's, it means that we're approved by God. To know that you're approved by God, it means that it means that you can come into this church this morning. It means you can go to your community group. You can sit in your D group and you can be honest about who you really are because you've been approved by God. You don't have to hide anymore behind this shield, behind this mask. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not because you've been approved by God. The only reason you would pretend to be something that you're not is because you, you didn't feel like you were approved by God. That's evidence that you don't know the gospel. The reason you hide behind your pretense is because you don't know the gospel. Because the gospel says you've been made right with God. And if you've been made right with God and he's the highest judge in the universe, then who kids a flip what anybody else thinks? But we hide. Because we don't war against an audacious gospel. We walk in a human man-centered little bitty wimpy gospel. That's why it's so jacked up. That's why we're so fruitless so many times. That's why there's moments in your past where you were closer to God than you are now. 
That's why. It's not for any other reason. That's why Paul is constantly boasting about his weakness. He can't, he, he can't convince people enough about how the, they go, Paul, you're, you're this and this and this. And he doesn't go, no, I'm not. He goes, you have no idea. I'm way more worse than that. Because he knows he's approved by God. See, here's the thing. The reconciled are called to be the reconcilers. You can't reconcile anything unless you've been reconciled. But if you've been reconciled, then you're called to be a reconciler. See, once the ultimate relationship has been reconciled and mended and brought back to where it was originally supposed to be, now you can be an agent to fix any relationship in your life. Yes, I just said that. You can. Because you've been entrusted this ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So then he says we're reconcilers. What does that mean? I mean we're ambassadors. What does that mean? What is an ambassador? An ambassador is an appointed person right they're not self-appointed they're appointed by somebody higher as an ambassador that to live in a foreign nation amongst a foreign people sound familiar hmm? yeah and what and then as ambassadors living in a foreign land um, amongst a foreign people what they're called to spread a message and what is the me- is it their message no it's the message given to them by the sender that's who we are We're ambassadors appointed by someone else to go to a foreign land to live amongst a foreign people to spread a message that's not our own. It's been given to us by the sender. So let's put all this together. Our greatest need is reconciliation. There was a former relationship in the past, and it was perfect. It's been fractured and broken. And now there's hostility and separation on both sides. You see, this is the problem. And then we're done. But I need you to get this. It was perfect, and now it's been fractured and broken. And now we're just going to so easily say, God reconciled it and made it back perfect. I want you to think about this now. What what do you have that you've ever had in your life that that broke and you fixed it, and it was exactly as it was when it was new. Nothing, that's the answer. Nothing. You'd never fix something to make it back new. It's only new one time. See, I like, I like when I get a new shirt because it's new, mainly because then I don't have to iron it because it's new. And it's only new one time. So I get to wear it new once. But now, once you wash it, it ain't new. You can never make it look new again once you wash it. I, if somebody knows what, what can I spray on it to make it back new, please tell me because you can't do it. It won't go back new. It'll be good. It'll be like new, but it's not new. Once you jerk the tags off it, stink it up with your stink, put it in the, laundry, in the, in the washing machine, it ain't new. So now, what happened? So we, it was perfect, the relationship with God. We 
messed, messed it all up. The Bible says that we, we sinned against God and our righteousness is like filthy rags. Isn't that what it says in the book of Isaiah? So we made the new shirt like a filthy rag. How do you make a filthy rag like new again? You can clean it. You can bleach it. You can iron it. You can starch it. You can take it to the dry cleaner. You can do whatever you want to do, but it ain't never going to be like new. In a worldly sense, in an earthly sense, it's not new. So how are we going to make things back perfect? How can we make it back perfect the way it was? Brand new, as if it had never happened. Remember where all this started? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I don't feel new. I feel like a shirt that's got stains on it. Been washed 50 times. Sometimes I iron it up and clean it up and it looks pretty good, but it's never like new. No matter how hard I try, I can't make it like new. So how can we get back to brand new once something's been damaged? Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't even know how to say those words. See, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, we're done. What in the world is God trying to tell us? Well, first thing is I know where a bunch of y'all get hung up on. That word might. Genomi in the Greek. Might. Might. See, might, well, that might be, it might happen, it might not happen. It probably might happen for somebody else, but it might probably not happen for me. Why doesn't it say, will become the righteousness of God? You all know the answer to this, because I've already taught you. For the love of Christ controls us. The reason it says might is because it's motivation, not manipulation. That's why it says might. God's not going to force you. But if you desire it, he'll motivate you to it. So what is righteousness? Because whatever righteousness is, according to this verse... If you're saved this morning, that's what you are. When you look in the mirror every morning, regardless of how you feel, you're going to have to war against this audacious gospel. What is it? The verdict of God that says you are deemed 100% right in the eyes of the Lord. See, y'all got me hot and sweaty now. My shirt ain't new and it stinks. It's audacious. The Bible says that 
on your worst day, in your most regrettable moments. In Christ, God looks at you. He sees His Son. That's what He sees. You want to do great things in 2023 for God? Wonderful, I do too. Then how are we going to do that? Why don't we spend as much time as we possibly can meditating on the fact that if we're saved, we're the righteousness of God. Whatever's going on in your life right now, you could be, you're deemed 100% right with God. No matter what, you're right with God. In your broken state in a dark and fractured world, with all the jacked up people around you and the stress you've just been through with all the holidays and all the things that are wrong with your family, all the things that are wrong with your marriage, all the things that are wrong with your kids, all the things that are wrong with your finances. It's going to take a war for you to wake up every morning, look in the mirror and say, good morning, righteousness. Righteousness.